History happened everywhere. The verdict. This is our after-show podcast where we look back at the most recent episode. Episode 58, Woodwork in Ethiopia during the early modern era. That's 1450 to 1750. So if you haven't listened to that, go back and check it out, or else there will be. Spoilers ahead. Oh, excuse me. Oh, sorry. Hello, my name is Ryan Weir, and I am here in the HHE studio with the Teflon to my pan. It's Mr. Peter Goddard. Hello, Ryan. <laughs> hey, Peter. I'm Teflon, am I? That you means are super I'm slippery slick. and nothing sticks to me. Super slick. Ah, yeah. Let's see if my grades stick to me. <laughs> <laughs> and we are joined, as ever, by the dapacaginous decadist of demology. It's the judge himself. It's Mr. Paul Dursley. Hello. Now, Peter, it's a bit late in the day, <laughs> oh, and I'm uh, I'm coming up plank on what you talked about. Oh my lord! <laughs> so I wonder if you wouldn't mind reminding us of what happened in the episode. Let's say within like maybe sixty seconds. And you thought those puns would work, did you? Would work. <laughs> <laughs> did you just hear that? No. What was it? It was the sound of your score going down and down and down. My score? It's not my episode, my it's friend. my score going down and I can hear it. You're right. <laughs> so would you mind doing us a 60-second summary? I'd be happy to. When would you like me to start? Um, now. I took you on a journey to the Horn of Africa, to Ethiopia, the oldest African nation and home of early man, early Christianity, and Tej, a delicious honey wine. We discovered woodwork in the shape of a processional cross that led us to talking about the Solomonic dynasty, including Queen Eleni, whose ambassador took 10 years to travel to Portugal and back, and died just before he made it home. We also learned about Wagga, ceremonial wood-carved statues erected to honour village heroes. And finally, we found out about the twig that, when chewed, can serve as a pretty effective toothbrush, making it wood that worked. Last week's episode done, summarised nicely, nice one son, now we're over to a young Dursley who's gonna tell you what he thought of me, he'll take you apart without any care, he's the lovely Paul Dursley, the lovely Paul Dursley. Ah, yes. Whittle by whittle, it's all coming back to me. (laughs) (laughs) That's another one off. (laughs) I'm holding that over for next week. (laughs) I thought it was an excellent episode, but it's not for me to judge, Pete. That's the job of just one man. So let's axe the question and find out if the judge will nail you on any inaccuracies. So, Paul, did you enjoy the show or were you just bored by it? Oh, these are plain awful. (laughs) (laughs) That's the last of it. I've got any more. (laughs) Okay. Do we go below E? (laughs) (laughs) I get a U. I can be the first U on record. First ungraded episode. (laughs) I found it an interesting episode. Let's put it like that. I full disclosure, I did provide Mr. Dursley with a sample of delicious Tej in order to give me that little extra boost on the scoring. Um, so. Excuse me. Do you know what I thought when I received a package through my door that was delivered by my postman who said there's something leaked in this package? <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> and I opened it to find a cloudy yellow <laughs> 
I can see how that might have looked. With a strange yeast aroma. <laughs> so um, I poured it down the lavatory. Did you really? No, I didn't. I actually knew about Tedge because I had to look it up because I didn't really trust you. <laughs> <laughs> but all I will say is do enjoy the chocolate bar that's on its way to you from me. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I love Tedge. I had a, a, a Tedgy hangover the very next day after recording. How was your head? Uh, mine was fine because uh, I was focused on the job at hand. And when you had to listen, which means you could drink more. And it's I always did a harder that role. well. You did absolutely polished it off nicely, mm. saving a little for our dear judge. Mm-hmm. So have you got it there, Paul? Do you want to try it? No, I have tried it. I tried it beforehand. And? Well, it, it was very much like mead, wasn't it? Which, it? which is what it is. Yeah, it's uh, it was very sweet. I had it quite cold, so I think that took some of the sweetness off it because I don't really like sweet drinks. Hmm. And it was very yeasty. I believe the word is floor, had quite a lot of floor. So it's a bit sherry overtones, maybe. He has such proper, a refined palate. I know, proper tasting notes. I thought it was a bit like squash, but boozy. <laughs> Orange squash. <laughs> yeah. It also had like a cidery edge. Yeah, I could see that. So I found the first sip felt way too sweet, but then a couple of sips later, I found I'd adjusted quite well. So when you went to the restaurant to obtain this bottle of Tedge, yes. uh, what was the experience like? Were they happy to see you? So yeah, this was in Hurrah Restaurant in Vauxhall in South London, mm-hmm. and a uh, big thank you to them for providing me with Tedge which was a little trickier to find than I thought it was going to be mm. and I was expecting them to kind of just hand me a bottle of commercially made Tedge I guess but no they come out with this just a plain old Home used brew. wine bottle that's obviously been dipped into some vat of Tedge out the back and, <laughs> and off we went did you talk to them about Ethiopia at all a little bit not a lot I had to places to be unfortunately so I couldn't stay and talk for too long and they were trying to run a restaurant <laughs> but uh, one of the things I didn't talk about in the episode was as well as Tej, the one of the signature dishes of Ethiopia is a kind of bread. It's a kind of bread called injera. I, I guess apparently that stews are, are served laid on the bread, and you use bread as a, an item for picking them up. So okay. instead of knives and forks, you've and plates, in fact. Mm. This injera bread is ubiquitous in Ethiopian food. So I was thinking about trying to do that as well, but we only have so much time and uh, Tej won, fortunately for you. Um, I think that's fairly common, isn't it? Like in history, people using bread as plates. Edible crockery? It is. But what what mm. was most interesting for me about this was it's the bread is actually based on a flour made from a really old ancient grain called teff. So teff. It's, a, it's a grain, so it's gluten-free bread as well. So if you were in gluten intolerant in some way mm-hmm. consider having an ethiopian meal and you can have a bit of bread with it because it's uh, gluten-free that sounds delicious yeah it's apparently it's a super ancient grain that's been growing in east africa for millennia i don't know why we haven't heard more about it i'd never heard of it before do all the food and drinks begin with te <laughs> i haven't put it to the test it's possible might be a quirk of the ethiopian language but i suspect that's more coincidence a cheese called tex <laughs> An afternoon beverage called tea. Nah, that's ridiculous. Crazy talk. (laughs) He had to take it too far, didn't he? to talk to you about my earliest ancestor. Um, Ardi. That's right. Ardipithecus ramidus. 
Um, you only gave us a little bit of information about that. We focused a lot on Lucy there, but less on Ardy. And so I thought I'd do a little bit of research just to sort of look, Lucy, see a little bit about it. Lucy's the celebrity, you see. I thought I'd focus on the uh, <laughs> yeah. sort of ancient Kardashian rather than the, the lesser known relative. Well, well, where was where was Laurel at the time? <laughs> <laughs> so Ardy means ground floor and Ramid from Ramidus means root in the local Afar language. And it, it basically means that Ardy lived on the ground and was the root of the family tree of humanity. That's where the name originates from. Ah, not a Beatles song at all. No. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, side note. I know we went with help. I need some Ardy. Not just any Ardy. (laughs) We did. After much soul searching. (laughs) Have you received your cease and desist letter yet? (laughs) No, but we did receive from a listener the suggestion of a hard day's night or an Ardy's night. Yeah, that would have been better. An Ardy's night. I feel shame and regret. <laughs> it would have been like we both went oh, oh yeah yeah that's better yeah get, hitting those high notes wasn't easy for you was it no as you can tell from the recording <laughs> <laughs> i loved it i thought it was great uh but a little bit about ardy so ardy was bipedal walked on two legs was about 120 centimeters tall it's about nearly four feet tall weighed around 110 pounds uh, it had a brain close to the size of today's chimpanzees which is one fifth of our modern homo erectus mega brains yeah and it had a small face. Homo sapien, actually. Homo but... sapien, sorry, yeah. What did I say? Homo erectus. Yes, you've got it on the brain. Yeah, I have. <laughs> <laughs> so when Ardy died, the thinking is, is that her remains were then trampled into mud, likely by hippos or by elephants, something heavy. And over millions of years, the erosion brought those badly crushed and distorted bones back to the surface. And they were so fragile when they were found that they would turn to dust at a touch. And so to save those fragments of bones, the scientists removed the fossils along with the surrounding rock. They took it to a lab and they carefully tweaked out the bones using a needle under a microscope, and they proceeded, according to them, millimetre by sub-millimetre. Oh, my Lord. A process which took several years. That's the micro version of carving out a blooming church from the rock, isn't it? <laughs> it is, exactly. Here's yeah. your needle, here's your microscope, welcome to the job. <laughs> and ultimately, they recovered more than 125 pieces of the skeleton. Wow. Yeah, so they, they took the crushed pieces of Ardy skull, and they scanned them, and digitally fit them back together, and they've actually been able to do that thing where you're able to put skin and muscles and bone on it so we kind of know what the face looks like wow that always blows my mind the way they can figure out what something looked like from soft tissue that's not there yeah you can go travel back in time four million years like pair bond with her how about that four foot high chimp like creature sounds like my speed <laughs> <laughs> i've seen you have worse <laughs> <laughs> So, Peter, anything else that you uh, left on the cutting room floor? Yeah, if you Google woodwork and Ethiopia, what you get back a lot of the time is images and websites about these things called jinnah stools, these three-legged stools, quite simple, carved out of a kind of wood called the Wanza tree, Wanza wood. And the Jinnah empire was way after my time period, so I couldn't do it. But I'm not sure why these just three very low three-legged stools were considered to be typically Ethiopian, but they, they come back hugely. But out of my time period, so I wasn't allowed to talk to them. But the Wanza wood is possibly more interesting than just its uses carving for stools. 
because not unlike our toothbrush tree, this wood has all sorts of very, very valuable properties. It's uh, good for medicine. It's good for feeding animals. It's got fruit that can be produced at a time when most other trees and plants aren't flowering and they've got very deep roots. So even when dry seasons are happening, you can kind of rely on these trees to give you a fruit that is available when everything else is kind of running out. It's also a really good tree for bees, honeybees, so they love to pollinate it. So what the tribes people would do, they'd hang their beehives under this tree as well, so it increased the output of your beehives. Oh, they'd hang a beehive rather than just waiting for a bee to come along. Yeah, and they'd, just, they'd, they'd just shortcut it and say, right, bees, you like the trees, trees, you like the bees, <laughs> boom, let's, uh, let's make some magic. But the bark has got a lot of properties, like it's anti-inflammatory, it's antibacterial, it's antioxidant, uh, and they also use it for setting broken bones. They kind of wrap a broken bone in in bark and that will help it heal apparently so not only can you sit on a comfortable wanza wood stool you can if you're in a pinch carve a bit of it off and help set your bones and (laughs) and deal with your many ailments and then throw a few bees in for good measure wanza wonder wood it is a wonder wood i like that see paul's got his marketing hat on (laughs) <laughs> but yeah it was surprisingly tricky the the other stuff that came back when looking at wood it's almost all the the ethiopian history stuff i've came across was super dominated by this sort of medieval christianity really mm. so what was coming back a lot was these diptych and triptych paintings on wood which isn't really woodwork but i'm willing to <laughs> willing to compromise on these things and they look re- quite similar to european medieval paintings there's a characteristic style to them apparently which is this kind of bigger bigger almond shaped eyes on the characters but it it wasn't wildly different to european art traditions and i didn't think does that count as woodwork does it and does it count as woodwork i mean i'm willing to stretch it but not for a just for a painting or two of the virgin with the with christ so i didn't talk about diptych and triptych paintings but the thing that did interest me about them was they're painted on tempera tempera is Prior to oil painting being a big thing, tempera is things painted in egg yolk. So there's paintings made of egg, basically. That have still hung around. There are some that are still available and still visible that uh, were made in the first century AD. Wow. Well, well, you know, when you sort of try to clear scrambled egg off a pan, egg yolk is incredibly difficult to get rid of. Yeah, it certainly, it, it gets very hard, but I wouldn't have expected yes. it to last for over a thousand years. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? That's uh, Yeah, and- it's, it, it was the binder of choice for thousands of years, way up into the medieval. I think just before Leonardo da Vinci, they were still using egg tempura. So you're saying that if I leave my frying pan on the side, it's not going to get better even after a week? <laughs> no, you probably need a new frying pan after a week. Uh, or you colour your eggs before you eat them and then try and sell what's left over as a, some sort of modern art. I like your thinking. <laughs> <laughs> Remind me, how's a toothbrush wood work? Well, that's wood that works. It works as a toothbrush and it's wood, you see. <laughs> why, are you, why are you smiling? <laughs> <laughs> I see you trying to undermine my score and I think it's working. <laughs> What's your thoughts on that, Paul? Oh, I'm with Pete on that one, obviously. Wait, what? Wow, I'm not expecting that. No, nor was I. What do you wait? What do, what do you mean? What do you mean? What do you mean? What do you mean? <laughs> well, well it's, you're putting wood to work. But it's woodwork. 
The topic was yes, woodwork. The word is woodwork. So putting wood to work is perfectly satisfactory. I mean, I don't want to wish to just, argue just with the judge. Just got the wit to be able to <laughs> expand upon a subject. You don't need to get annoyed about it. <laughs> you got a point taken off me last week. I did. I'm going to get you back, son. <laughs> You've failed so far, my friend. I have. That uh-huh. doesn't mean that I will. But tell us a bit about the research. So the, I thought this was going to be dead easy, to be honest with you. When I started, I, too. I thought, ah, oh, wood, wood, wood's work's bound to be a thing. I bet they did loads of stuff. And I was astonished by how hard it was to find. Partly everything got obscured by the fact that if you put Ethiopian woodwork, antiques, you just get back a load of auction sites and people selling Ethiopian woodwork. Right. So to but try and versions of woodwork. Well, almost all these small stalls with three legs, to be honest with you. <laughs> right. okay. uh, and then you refine it a little bit, and then you start getting this medieval art and these a lot of crosses and religious icons and tablets, which we talked about a bit. But nothing that was sufficiently standalone or in depth to make it other than me going, here's a box. Yeah, it's here's crazy. That's crazy to me. I mean, I thought there was going to be stuff about the tools they would use for making things and the types of, I don't know, boats, houses. I mean, I, th- I would have thought everything would be made of wood. Well, and I mean, it was. It wasn't like they weren't able to to make things out of wood. The churches that we talked about, they have a particular multi-layered approach to building, mm. which was wood and masonry alternating. And there was a bit about that, but I, I was really shocked. I suspect it's out there, but I think probably because the topic lent itself to just lots of results about not what I was looking for, the filtering was much, much harder than I thought it was going to be. Yeah. What about you, Paul? Are you familiar with Ethiopia? Yes. Uh, it's one of those countries where that you think is going to be really interesting. And I think everybody who's been there or have done anything there sort of says, yes, it's just so different and you know, so unexpected. Although I suppose the problem is now you hear everybody says this. So if if, if one were to go, it, would, it may be a bit disappointing. Probably when things calm down a bit would be a good time to go. But yeah, it's so much more influenced by that sort of the Middle Eastern and mm. Egyptian influences. When you think of Africa, I think the classic thing to think about is more West African images, savannah and slavery and all that, all the West African stuff that we've seen mm-hmm. in our various Congo and Benin and other episodes. But Ethiopia is much more linked to the ancient history from the sort of Egyptian Middle Eastern side of things. And yes. consequently, it has a... I hesitate to say European feel because it is its own thing, but it does feel a lot more familiar, part of a tradition that, that you're familiar with. I had no idea, one, the size of it, and two, the variety of landscape, which is something that yes, is it's... a familiar thing from a lot of our visits to Africa, is the variety of location. I imagine savannah and that's it, or just mountainous or just desert or whatever, but of course it's not. It's across that entire landscape. There's there's a great deal to see. I think nature documentaries yeah. have a lot to answer for in that regard. You, you think Africa and you're immediately thinking prides of lions, stalking zebras in the savannah and you forget that there's mountains and deserts and lowlands and highlands. And So for each of our main episodes, I do a YouTube video, right? So if you want to go and see our YouTube channel, you can go visit uh, History Happened Everywhere. And what I include is some stock footage video of the different things. So like I've got 
footage in there of bees and honey for the Tedge part and just general landscape, the flag and things like that. So it's just in the background as like a moving wallpaper. But the one thing that I couldn't find really was any stock footage of Ethiopia. Uh, it was really difficult to find any landscape photography wow. of Ethiopia. It was That's very surprising. hard to find. Yeah. So I had to just sort of put East Africa in. Wow. So apologies for anyone. Looking at that thinking, it, that's not home. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. One of the things that I was caught by was the idea of these tabots. Yeah, so this was the in the example of the ceremonial processional cross that we were looking at, there's mm-hmm. a square at the bottom of it said to represent one of these tabots, which is itself a kind of a replica of the Ark of the Covenant or the tabernacle, your favourite word. That's exactly right, yeah. So I, I did some research on that and uh, a whole bunch of the tabots, you said, were in the British Museum. Yes. And they are not only in the British Museum, they're in the British Museum storage room in the basement for no one to be able to see because we've talked in the past haven't we about how the british museum has ownership of a number of items that perhaps aren't considered british and other western museums and other Western museums. Absolutely. Sorry, this isn't just British Museum, but just in this instance, British Museum does have uh, items that don't strictly um, belong to the country, can we say? <laughs> uh, so in 1867, an army of 13,000 British troops was dispatched from India to rescue a handful of Europeans who were being held captive by the Ethiopian emperor Chuadros II. And the campaign to get them back involved building roads and a railway across 400 miles of mountainous terrain. It took them over three months to reach Tuadros's mountain fortress. And there they had uh, a battle and Tuadros's army was just completely d- demolished. But anyway, following the defeat, the British troops plundered the fortress and nearby churches. And they took the tabots and hundreds of other things, including the processional crosses, gold and silver jewellery, illustrated manuscripts, that sort of stuff. In fact, they took so much stuff that 15 elephants and 200 mules were used to transport them all. And that's from my reading of Tabbots, those are the holiest thing in the church. So that of all the looting and pillaging, the, the Tabbots are pretty much the holiest thing you could be stealing, aren't they? Absolutely. Yeah. And and not only that, they, they didn't just take them. They then held an auction and they even brought an expert from the British Museum to be at that auction to bid for some of them. And all the proceeds with that were then shared amongst those British British troops who had been in the battle as prize money for their successful campaign. Anyway, so they then went into private collectors and then ended up in museums and libraries. And Ethiopia has been asking for them back, like repeatedly, for over 150 years. And the answer has been no. And uh, the, the argument given is that it's forbidden by the British Museum Act of 1963. That law forbids sending valuable objects out of the country. <laughs> so they can, instead, they can just sort of sit in the storeroom. Well, if only the Ethiopians have thought of of having a law preventing people looting and pillaging your town and taking things out of their country. So it's their own fault. Uh, but I looked into it because, you know, I thought, well, it doesn't seem like a great argument, right? right? It's not super legit, is it? It's not even been purchased. It's been just straight up looted. Yeah, the British Museum says that it's committed to sharing objects from the collection and wants to develop and build long-term equitable relationships with overseas institutions, which just seems a bit flaky to me personally. The UK Culture Secretary said that if you follow the logic of restitution to its logical conclusion, museums as we know them would empty and there would be no single points where people can see multiple 
all things. So that's the argument. That's a little self-serving, I would argue. (laughs) Oh no, we have to keep all the nice things because otherwise you wouldn't have anywhere where all these nice things were. It's a difficult one because one can see both sides of the argument. However, there is no argument if the stuff is not on display. Yeah, I think these tablets, you can't, there's not even a picture because obviously I was looking for artifacts in museums and you don't get a, even a picture of them on the website. Not even behind a paywall. <laughs> no, nothing. It's like they're just stored, aren't they? I mean, I, can, I, I don't agree with it, but I can see an argument for in our Western, well-funded museums, they're going to be well looked after and they might not deteriorate. Whereas if they are in your Ethiopian museum, you know they could fall apart and be not looked after that is what i said when i stole my neighbor's car yeah i said you weren't changing the oil (laughs) uh and i will change the oil so and so i'm going to drive your car around thanks (laughs) (laughs) and did the judge what did the judge say i wasn't happy (laughs) i have a way to get around it why don't you just put the words anything but at the start of the name of the museum The anything but British Museum. (laughs) (laughs) Well then, Peter, we have come to the end of the line. It's time for you to step into the dock and prepare to face the people's judge. Judge Dursley, are you ready to give your verdict? Yes, I am. Okay, well then, please, will the defendant rise? I'm risen. Your Honour, as usual, may we start proceedings by first asking for your verdict on factual content. Well, it's quite difficult, isn't it? Because Pete just admitted that there wasn't that much content on woodworking in during that. Um, he definitely did. I heard him say it. I, I'm willing to put my hands up to that. Even I was sl- slightly disappointed at the lack of woodworking. But that's what you're tasked to do, and you failed, so... (laughs) (laughs) So can we have a grade, then, for factual content? I think I might be a bit harsh. Good. I mean, oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) I think that I shall give a... C+. I'd have been happy with the C+. I'm I'm happy with the C+. That's better than I was expecting, to be honest. (laughs) All right, let's move on, then. Entertainment value. Oh, dear. I, I, I'm sorry, but your little skits were just awful this time. <laughs> we had trouble this week, to be we, honest. Yeah, I was pretty desperate. <laughs> well, don't put them in then. <laughs> Can we get a grade for entertainment value? For entertainment value, I should give a C minus. Well, we, I knew we'd lose him with Marvel, and there were two songs. It was always a dangerous proposition. And we called you a Nazi. And you called me a Nazi, yes. I'm not a Nazi. For the record, I am not a Nazi. Don't be a Nazi. Okay, well then we have reached the Dursley Factor. How Dursley was this episode? Very. Ooh. Oh, okay. Tell us more. The, the country, I think, and the time period made it the woodworking let you down a bit. But I think that it's, it's something that got my interest immediately. And so I'm going to give an A- for that. 
What? Ooh, what a recovery. An A minus. What a recovery. <laughs> I mean, that is the Dursley factor. That is. You just you never just don't know. don't know, you do. <laughs> it's a roll of the dice. Who knows? But here we are. We have reached the final verdict. Peter, before the judge passes his verdict, you have an opportunity to enter a plea. If you choose to do so, please make that plea now. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> Interesting. He's just okay, sneezing. Okay, I, I, I atta- I'll take that in <laughs> In which case, Your Honour, the defendant stands before you. Have you reached a verdict? Yes, I have. In which case, I would ask most respectfully for your ruling. I don't think Pete's going to like this. Although the Dursley factor is important to me, I think I can't give it that much weight um, in the overall thing. So I'm going to give you an overall score of C+. C+. Plus. Oh, that's below my usual high standards, but I did have you undermining me throughout, so in a way I've got away with something here, I think. <laughs> you seem really knocked. <laughs> you seem genuinely upset. I'm just, I spent a lot of time researching. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, look, there we are. That is the show for this week. If you'd like to get in touch about any of the things that we've talked about on the show or just to say hello, you can reach out to us on social media through our website at hhepodcast.com or by email at Pete and Ryan at hhepodcast.com. We would love to hear from you and you never know, you might end up featured on a future show. That's right. An episode like Madness in Middle Earth during the Third Age, our special Lord of the Rings Tolkien episode. Yes, I'm not looking forward to that one one bit. Well, Maybe you'll be pleasantly surprised. But one way to definitely feature on a future episode is to rate and review the show on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Your recommendation really goes a long way to helping bring the show to new listeners. If you're on the social media, TikTok, Instagram, Facebook or Twitter, you can find us. Our handle is at HHE Podcast. And if you subscribe to those, you'll get an alert when we post one minute animated HHE Bites, which we do from time to time. And we are going to be back again soon with our next episode. But in the meantime, a huge thank you to the judge himself. Thank you, Paul. My pleasure. And that's it. I guess all that's left to say is... You've been listening to... So, Paul, how long do you think it would take you to dig out a cathedral in a rock? Uh, Depends on the type of rock. That's a good answer, isn't it? It is an excellent answer. And the tools provided, presumably. Yeah. Yes. So if it was sandstone, for example, I think I'm probably going to have an easier ride, aren't I? <laughs> than granite or something. Maybe yeah, your church isn't going to last very long either. Yeah, so that, that sort of reminds me. Remember, as a child, sometimes, I don't know, if you were waiting at a bus stop or something, and you had a 10 pence piece, and you had like a brick wall, which is effectively a type of, sort of manufactured fired clay, you could you could sort of, with, with this coin, sort of be effectively, we drill out a hole in the wall and over a couple of days you could actually get like a hemisphere out of it. Is this tales of young Dursley's vandalism career? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> it's a true confession. I, th- I think those buildings a lot have been long demolished. <laughs> Blah, <laughs> blah,